0: Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and turn with me. You don't have to turn very far into your Bible, just a few pages, and find Genesis 37. Like I had mentioned a little bit earlier, we're launching a a new, even though we're kind of like halfway or more through summer, uh, (laughs) I don't know how that happened, Uh, we're starting our summer worship series on the life of Joseph and we're calling it Colors of the Gospel, looking for the gospel story, the redemption story of God uh, that really is from cover to cover in, in our Bible. So, if you have your Bibles open, Genesis 37, I, w- I wanted to just start out by reading you the first part of this story. Now, keep in mind, this is a story that takes place about 1,700 years before Jesus walked the face of this earth. Um, we, we, if we remember part of the Genesis story, uh, God reached out to Abraham and made some promises, a covenant with him that he would make his ancestors uh, numerous like the stars. And so Abraham is kind of viewed as, as one of the patriarchs. And uh, so Abraham and then his son Isaac... Uh, and Isaac, uh, his son Jacob, and so Jacob's son Joseph is the, is the one who the, kind of the camera lens turns to uh, for the remaining portion of the book of Genesis. So his story starts out in Genesis 37 like this. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him, or as some of your translations, or as we know it in pop culture, a coat of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well, this kid doesn't know when to shut up, I guess. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. I'm going to leave off reading there, and and we'll get to telling the rest of chapter 37 here in a a few minutes. But As we begin uh, to think through this text, um, would you pray with me? Lord, we are turning to your word, and I just pray that in these moments uh, we would have open minds and, and open hearts. And I pray that as we examine this story that your Holy Spirit would would work in us and we would be alert to your presence um, so that you will help connect dots between what's going on uh, in this story and what's going on in our own lives. And when you connect those dots, Lord, I, I pray that we would be open to listening for your word of how we might respond and to you. Um, we thank you for these moments. And we thank you for your word, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I uh, noticed I have noticed a couple bumper stickers recently that I just got a kick out of. It made me laugh a little bit. One of them said... Um, we put the fun in dysfunctional. Think about that. Yeah, amen. We we know that one. Uh, another one, kind of a long, uh, similar line was, uh, if you met my family, you'd understand. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think we, you know, we laugh at those. We kind of think they're cute and funny partially because there's a hook in it and and there's a barb and we know that it's kind of true to our own lives we have to look in the mirror look look around and admit that you know in some way we're all a little bit flawed we're all a little bit dysfunctional in in some way i i love people watching and we had the opportunity this summer to spend a little time in a couple of our national parks, and there's thousands of people around that you can just sit on a bench and and watch people. Uh, we were in Yellowstone, and uh, there's a big um, amphitheater now manufactured around Old Faithful, and every time that Old Faithful is about to erupt. Uh, the amphitheater fills up. There's several rows of benches, and it goes kind of in a a half circle almost all the way around. And and then then there's standing room only behind that, and so you see thousands of people just right there. Well, we were walking around uh, that area, and I, I like particularly watching how parents try to get their kids to do what they want. Uh, You know, and I'm sure that every one of us here has said something like, uh, don't make me count to three. (laughs) Or you already see people in the count. One. Did your parents do this to you? No. Have you done this to your kids? Yes. That's one. Two. So this parent (laughs) is trying to convince, I don't even know what they were trying to convince the kid to do, but... They got to the count, and the parents said, I'm going to count to three. And the kid, without even missing a beat, said, you can only count to three? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Well, thinking that through a little bit, obviously this has happened before, and the kid knows that if the parent gets to three, probably nothing's going to happen. You know, there's a little dysfunction in that you i 'll have to save several stories for sermons on down the line, but you know watching parents interact with their kids is just funny uh, and sad at the same time sometimes, uh, but also watching how husbands and wives interact with each other is particularly intriguing, and it shows us the you know at the core of uh, dysfunction and brokenness is this desire in each of us to act selfishly, to exert power and control and to, to get our way. That's really at the core of, uh, of, of dysfunction and so forth. So we have to come to this conclusion or at some point realize that, yeah, I'm flawed, I'm flawed. I got a little dysfunction, a little brokenness in in my own life, uh, in in families, in communities, uh, in churches, in the systems of the world. We look around and and we can see a little or a lot of dysfunction, depending on, on where you are. And it's all because of a consequence of sin entering into the world and us being, uh, at our core, a a sinful person, a sinful being. And I know it's kind of hard to accept that fact once in a while. Dysfunction and brokenness is extremely easy to spot in other people. But when we look... At ourselves, we we tend to minimize our thoughts, our behavior, you know, the, the the sin and the brokenness, dysfunction that we have in our own lives. We kind of rationalize it, we minimize it, you know. Well, I'm not really a bad person, you know. I I'm I'm generally good. I may have, you know, a flaw here and there, but it's really, it's not that big a deal, right? But the same sort of behavior that we witness in other people, it seems to be a big deal. Oh, look how wrecked they are. Same thing in us is, uh, it's not that big a deal. When we get to the Joseph story, we usually hear this uh, story told as a a story about going from the prison to the palace. Have you heard that one before? that Joseph's life was in the pit, the prison uh, things had gone wrong they were kind of out of his control. Things happened to him, and so he found himself in a really low place. And, and we teach this story. We hear this story preached that it's, a yeah, he, you know, he, he rose up and ended up in the palace. And so in the process, we tend to make this story into a lesson on morality. And so we, we go through and we, we read these uh, verses these chapters and we go searching for moral lessons that we can learn about life and there are certainly some really good things about life that we can observe in the story of joseph and in the grand scheme of things the the whole family tree of joseph going backwards and forwards there's lots of lessons to be learned for sure but it's not really a story about going from the prison to the palace. Um, it's not a story where we are supposed to, you know, like, for example, in in the chapter that we read today. It's it's not a story that we go, hey, look at those brothers. Those are mean, bad boys. Don't behave like those boys look at my guy, Joseph. You know, he just seemed to rise up above that. He was faithful and true and honest. And so act like Joseph. Don't act like these boys. That's a message that you hear coming out of this chapter sometimes. Another message that you hear sometimes is, well, Jacob was kind of just a passive dad. You know, he didn't seem to have control over his own house. And so we turn to a story like this and we try to make it about improving our parenting skills. We should always be trying to improve our parenting skills, but we, we tend to lift the morality lessons out of texts like this and, and think that that's really what the story is about, but that, that's not what the story is about. If, if the story was about going from the prison to the palace, the palace would be the climax or the end of the story, but it, it's not. The, the story goes on. If if it ends with Joseph rising to power and fame and wealth in the palace, well, what does that do for the promise that God made to his great-great-grandfather Abraham? God had promised Abraham, I'm going to build a people out of you. When you were nothing, that's where I found you. That's where I came to you. That's where I made my covenant with you, and I'm going to build you into my holy people. Well, we get to this place in the story, and if if it ends up being about Joseph just rising to power in Egypt, well, that's it. What's left of God's promise to Abraham? Where where do we go from there? So it's not really a story uh, about Joseph's ascension in egypt it is a story about life it is a story about the redemptive activity of god in the world and we're getting a glimpse into how it, that was manifested in the lives of of abraham's ancestors See, we, God created us, we, we're created with a freedom, but we are burdened by sin. But we have to remember that that the human story matters to God. You matter to God. We matter to God. And so what he created that was wrecked by sin, he is, he is constantly trying to redeem and restore and rebuild. And so there's plenty of Dysfunction that we see in Abraham's family, in Isaac's family, in Jacob's family, and now here we are with uh, with Joseph, and we we see evidence of the brokenness of humanity that that sin wreaked on this world. and In chapter thirty seven, we uh, we come into the story story part way through. Um, Jacob's life we get this at the very beginning this is the account of Jacob's family line and we're immediately introduced to Joseph and quickly the story degenerates into uh, giving us a glimpse of the consequences of dysfunction and brokenness and sin that that was in this family and so as I was reading through the whole story not just in chapter 37 there were there were a few different kinds of brokenness that kept rising to the surface and i just was taking some notes and, and so the three of them that i wanted to to mention there's the the there's a family or maybe you want to say a generational brokenness that is evident in the story and if you think about it we are all influenced by our households of origin our our parents are the people who raised us, the people who have been closest to us in our lives uh, have a significant influence over who we are and who we are becoming. And <clears throat> sometimes that's extremely positive. It's a good thing. Sometimes sometimes it's tough. It's a challenge. Sometimes there's some bad news in that. Um, your parents... Um, some of you are parents out there. You know, we pass things along to our kids. Things were passed to us from our parents. How many of you parents here have had like been exasperated with your kids, and you go to say something to them, and you open your mouth, and your mom or your dad comes out. Is that is that a comment? Yeah. Like I don't. You know, there's some things like I would. I'm never going to say that to my kids. And then all of a sudden, in the heat of a moment, you open your mouth and. Out it comes. Things are passed from generation to generation. They're very powerful. Um, Sinful patterns of families are handed from generation to generation. Not necessarily intentionally but it's just because we are surrounded by people and when we watch each other behave things are, are, are transmitted. So we see patterns of alcoholism go from generation to generation to generation. We see patterns and cycles of abuse that, that you can trace back generations, and you just see that it, every so often in, in each and every generation, somehow that cycle of abuse is perpetuated in some way. You can go on and on, alcoholism, abuse, and, and so on. These things kind of travel with, with our families these kinds of things impact not only our present, but future generations. The choices that we make right now are going to impact not just our kids, but our grandkids and people who interact with our family. When we look at the story in front of us, the, the storyline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph, who sort of reaps some of these consequences, there's a deeply rooted pattern of lying and deception that traces its way through each of these generations i started with abraham they were on the move and uh, he he was married to a woman named sarah and as they entered into um, egypt he lied to pharaoh about who sarah was he said oh this is my sister because he feared for his own life. Uh, we get to Isaac. Isaac did the exact—he—he he repeated the exact same lie of his father to protect his own skin uh, with Abimelech. Oh, this—this this isn't my wife. This is—this is my sister. She was beautiful, and he thought that if Abimelech knew that she was his wife, that Something bad might happen to him so Abimelech could take his wife. So Abraham, one lie. Isaac repeated the exact same lie. But then we get into Isaac's uh, story a little bit. And uh, Isaac married a woman named Rebekah. And together they had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Names that you probably have, have heard before. Esau was the oldest brother, and Jacob came out, but as the Bible story tells us, uh, as uh, Jacob was coming out, Esau was was coming out, and Jacob was coming out, and Jacob was hanging on to the heel of his brother, like maybe like pulling him back, like, no, I want to get out first. (laughs) So Jacob, the, the name means heel grabber or deceiver. And the deceiving started because mom and dad showed a lot of favoritism in that family. Dad favored his oldest boy, Esau. Esau was a strapping guy. He liked to be outside hunting and doing all sorts of manly stuff. And Isaac was was attracted to that. And so Isaac favored Esau. Jacob, he was interested, you know, and he, he was really a mama's boy. He liked to be at home and just hang around the, the, the house and not, not really interested in the hunting and, and stuff. And, and so Rebecca, mom, Jacob was her favorite. And there, were, there was really no secret that each parent had their own favorite son. Well, in those days... Um, Esau was, as the oldest, would be set to receive uh, the blessing of the father. He would have the largest share of the inheritance. He had the birthright. Well, the Bible story tells us that um, Esau was out in the field. Uh, He had been out there a long time. He came home. He was tired. He was famished. In fact, he, he thought he was so hungry that he was going to die. Well, Jacob was a good cook, and he had the nice little... Lentil soup going on the stove. It smelled pretty good. So Esau comes in. He's like, Oh, thank you. I I want some of that soup. And Jacob, the deceiver, said, No. I don't want, you don't, make your own soup. And he's, I'm going to die if you don't give me some of that soup. And so Jacob says, Sell me your birthright. And Esau says, I'm about to die. What? What do I care about a birthright? And so Jacob buys Esau's birthright for a bowl of soup. There was some animosity between those boys. They each knew that they had the favored attention of one of the parents. Jacob was the deceiver and got the birthright from Esau. So Isaac is aging He's almost blind. He can barely see. And he's laid out on his bed. And he says, I need, to, I need to give my blessing to my oldest son, Esau. So go out into the field, get me some of that wild game that you get, and fix it up nice for me. And I'll give you my blessing. Well, Rebecca's in the next room. She hears what's going on. She knows that now's the time that we have to act for my favorite boy. So she goes and she finds Jacob, and she says... Uh, We're gonna get, we're gonna get Esau's uh, blessing for you. And Jacob's like, I don't know how that's gonna work. So mom had this plan schemed up. She said, I will cook some of your father's favorite food, and you will take it into him. He can't see who you are, so you're gonna act like Esau. You're gonna give him that food. He's gonna eat, and he's gonna give you the blessing. And Jacob's like, well my arms are kind of smooth-skinned, and, and Esau, he's a really hairy man, and, and you know, what if he touches my arm? He's going to know. And so, mom, she says, well, we've got some goat skin. We'll just wrap your arms in goat skin, and so you'll, you'll trick, you'll deceive your dad. Jacob follows through with this. He goes in, brings in the food, and and uh, Isaac is just excited about, you know, the food and he eats some of it. Oh, my boy Esau, come close. He comes close and he touches his arm and he, he feels his arm and it's hairy like Esau's. And he's like, oh, my favorite son, Esau. And, and he gives Jacob Esau's blessing. So Jacob is leaving that room and, and Esau is coming out of the, out of the field now. With his, you know, whatever game that he got. And he's, you know, ready to cook up something for his dad and he's excited about it. And he finds out what happens. And what do you think ha- He's furious. How dare you do that? I'm going to kill that boy. Mom hears Esau threaten Jacob and she goes, You're going to have to leave town. You're going to have to go off, go see my brother. You need to spend some time away. I'll tell you when it's safe to come back. And so we we see the consequences of this lying and, and the deception and this dysfunction and brokenness and sin that's riddled this family. It's splitting everybody apart. Instead of having a cohesive family unit that is together through all of this, the dysfunction has. Split the family and Jacob is now no longer part of that household. This is the family that Jacob grew up in. This is the household. This is what he witnessed day in and day out. This is what he experienced. He saw his mom and dad pick favorites and treat each boy accordingly. And so we get to chapter 37 and and we see Jacob doing the exact same thing that his parents did he picked favorites all over the place when he had gone off into this other land he uh he found a girl that he wanted to marry her name was rachel and she was beautiful she was the younger of two sisters older sister's name was leah and the really the only thing the bible says about leah is she didn't see so well um so there's Leah as the older one, and Rachel, who was beautiful and had a nice figure, is what the Bible says. And it says that Jacob was in love with Rachel. And so uh, <clears throat> Jacob was working for uh, his, um, a guy named Laban, who was his mom's brother. And he, Laban came to him and said, it's not fair that I just have you work for me without compensating you for your work. What would be a fair wage? And Jacob says, I'd like to marry your daughter Rachel. And so Laban calculates it out. Well, how about you work for me for seven years? And then I'll let you marry my daughter Rachel. And Jacob's like, Wow, absolutely. And the really the very next thing that we learn in in Genesis is that we get to the end of that seven years, it comes to the wedding day, and it says that. Uh, Jacob didn't think that any time had elapsed at all. Working for seven years of hard labor for Rachel didn't feel like any time at all because he was so in love with her. And so we get to the wedding day and the wedding night and Laban pulls a little trick. He deceives the deceiver. Instead of sending in Rachel, he sends in Leah. Leah. Now, I imagine it was probably a party atmosphere for the wedding, and so uh, I imagine that Jacob was quite intoxicated and didn't really know exactly what was going on, And, and Laban sends in Leah, and in the morning, surprise, here's your wife. And Jacob is upset. He goes to his, he goes to Laban. He says, "How dare you deceive me like that? I agreed to work seven years to marry Rachel." And and Laban says, "Well, that's not really our custom here. We have to marry off the oldest daughter first, and then and then the younger one. Finish your uh, week, uh, your marriage week, the celebration week with uh, Leah, and then I will give you." Rachel as well, except, here's the deception, you're going to have to work seven more years for her. So Jacob has now been deceived, so he has picked a favorite. He was in love with Rachel, and he was tricked into also marrying Leah. And so you would imagine that when, and Rachel was barren for a long time, and she finally had a son named Joseph, the character we're talking about. And so, Rachel being the favorite wife, the firstborn of Rachel was his favorite son, Joseph. didn't matter that he was the 11th boy that Jacob had. He was the 11th son. And so, when you think about birthrights and blessings, he was far from the birthright and the blessing in that family. But Jacob picked favorites. This is my favorite son. And he treated him that way, and he gave him that ornate robe, that coat of many colors. And a little bit about that robe, it was uh, the word that's used in the Hebrew describes a robe that had long sleeves. Both, both sleeves were long, down to the, to the wrists. And it was a long robe that went all the way down to just above the ankles. And it was a it was kind of a, a, a royal kind of a picture. Think about it that way. This was not a robe that you would go out. This is a family of herders. They worked out in the fields, tending to the flocks. This was not a robe that you would wear to do that particular vocation. What the message that, that Jacob was sending to the rest of his family was Joseph is the most important. He is the one that I'm going to pass along the birthright and the blessing to. Uh, you did not wear that kind of a robe out into the field. The ones that you would wear for general labor were, were kind of cut off, sleeveless, and, and they were a little bit shorter, so you were, there was more maneuverability. So what, what the robe spoke to the rest of the family was dad loves him best and he views him as management, not general labor. And when you have a younger boy, significantly younger boy, who is viewed as management, and we read in that that he was out managing. And his first management responsibilities were, hey, just go out and bring back a report to me on what the boys are up to. And he brought back, what, a bad report. Fueled that animosity that was going on. See, this family of God... The chosen people, if you will, they're just riddled with dysfunction and brokenness and sin. And even as they were trying to figure out what it meant to follow God into the promises that He laid out for them, they were just a flat out immoral people deceit, lying, treachery, abuse, neglect, murder, rape, incest, anger, jealousy, envy, favoritism, stealing. Arrogance, selfishness, cheating, vengeance. The list goes on. These are all qualities that are exhibited in the family story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The sinful patterns of their families were passed from one generation to the next. So there's this, reading through Genesis, you see this family or this generational kind of brokenness that's out there. Another kind of brokenness that, that comes to the surface is kind of a societal or a, uh, you know, a cultural brokenness. And you see that exhibited in in a couple of ways. Well, um, One, our culture has this really loud voice that's just chirping into our heads all of the time and getting our attention. So pop culture and entertainment and video games and movies and music and, and a lot of, you know, you listen and you watch and you've seen the decline over time on the, the values and the morals that are, you know, uh, in some of our pop culture and it just kind of it seems like they're on a slippery slope downhill and they're encouraging us to be loose with our uh, morals and our personal practices and, and over time this stuff has become a normalized behavior we think oh yeah I just you know do whatever and, that, and that's fine and, and some of that's just it's preached to us every day and so as it becomes normalized we begin to think that that it's okay, the way that I'm acting and, and behaving. I, I remember when I've, I was in college and I was um, managing a roller skating rink, I've mentioned that before. I mean, one of my favorite responsibilities there was I got to be the DJ for the roller skating rink and that's kind of fun to do. And uh, I just remember looking at the Billboard Top 100 hits from, I don't know, 91 or 1992 and, um, And every so often, on the billboard chart, you would have uh, the song listed, and next to it, there would be, a, a, in lowercase letters, there would be a a little red E, explicit. So something in that song uh, would, you know, you got to be really careful who you let listen to the song, because there's some messaging in this song that may not be appropriate for all audiences. I was in that industry for a while, and uh, uh, just the other day I went and i was like, what what would that list look like today? And in 1992, I think that there may have been two or three songs out of a hundred that were marked with the little red E. And you look at the list of the last few years, and there's more songs listed with a little red E than there are without. The, there's a change that's going on in our pop culture is telling us that all of these sorts of things are okay. It's becoming normalized. And, and so they're, they're filtering in to how we think and, and act. So there's pop culture. And, but there's also the systems that we find in the world. Uh, that play a huge part in, in shaping our values. We, we look for answers in the political system, uh, in the financial system. You could even argue, you know, we, we look to religious systems, and, and all, there's all sorts of systems that are out there. Uh, and you would say that maybe they're in place, and maybe they're even intended for good, but the way they're structured, they're, they're human structures. And if they're human structures, that means there's some flaws. There's some brokenness. There's some dysfunction in the systems. And when we try and depend on these systems for guidance, uh, sometimes we stray a little bit off course. And sometimes the systems that are in place in the world, even if at the beginning, when they were put together, they, this, this is going to be good, they have some unintended consequences that that abuse people and hurt people and marginalize people. So there's brokenness that we find in those pop culture and in the systems of the world and, and I think we sometimes embrace the brokenness of the culture and we let it begin to shape us. Even though as followers of Christ we ought to be living by the standards of God and His priorities and sharing His love out in the world, and we have the perfect picture that was embodied in the the person of of Jesus Christ and and His work. There's a third kind of brokenness that you see out there, and it's personal brokenness. We may be a product of our families. We may be a product of... Um, the society or the culture in which we live, we may be influenced heavily by both of those. We may not have learned proper tools as we were growing up, but it doesn't remove the responsibility from us. There is personal responsibility for all of us, and the author of Hebrews talks about all of us standing before God. You know, being held to account for our actions and our thoughts and and our behaviors. Paul told the church in Rome, for everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a a personal brokenness that we need to come to recognize, that we may be heavily influenced by these other things, but each one of us, in and of ourselves, are flawed and broken and sinful people. So the reality is, I mean, it's it would be hard for any of us to say, "Oh no, there's no brokenness in the world." <laughs> Nobody could say that. The reality is that we all come from, we live among, and we are broken people. It's just how it is. The story that's in front of us shows us what the consequences look like. It shows us that uh, this brokenness in sin that is infected humanity, um, there, there are consequences that we, re, that we reap from that. Immoral behavior, it destroys harmony that we've seen in, in this story. Favoritism, it cultivates animosity and it breeds arrogance. And you kind of get the sense uh, that some people read Joseph's story and they put Joseph in this category with people like Daniel uh, and they they don 't see any flaws or sin in joseph 's life, and then there 's very few characters in the bible daniel isn 't presented as one that has any uh, flaws. Uh, Jesus is another one, of course, Jesus is you know greater than Daniel, but some scholars will put Joseph up in that category, and I would disagree because I think that there 's a puffed up arrogance about Joseph as he is dealing with his brothers now in the end he 's a very faithful, forgiving, loving person. Uh, but I, I think as I read this text that the favoritism went to his head. And as he is sharing these dreams with his brothers, I just read into it a little bit of a tone like, I'm a little better than you. Dad loves me the best. Look at, look at my coat. It'll tell you that. And so we have this multicolored robe walking around that's just a constant reminder in his brother's minds that, that, that Joseph is elevated over and above them. Communication breaks down. That's a consequence to brokenness. They couldn't even speak peaceably to Joseph. They couldn't speak a kind word to this brother. Their jealousy calluses over into anger and hardens into hatred. Brokenness pushes us to act in ways that hurt other people. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. Um, brokenness that works its way and, and it kind of just bubbles up out of our life. It's us acting in selfish ways that ends up minimizing and, and hurting all the other people that are around us. And the story continues. And as it, it goes on in, in verse 12, Dad, hey Joseph, manager, I need you to go and check on your brothers. They're about 50 miles north of here. I want you to make that trip and I want you to just see how they're doing and I want you to bring me back a report. Joseph's obedience of He goes off wearing his robe, and the boys see him coming at a distance. And they see the robe coming at a distance. And they think to themselves very quickly, mind you, hey, we're 50 miles from home. This boy's away from the safety of the household. Let's just kill him. Let's get rid of this one. And uh, fortunately, there's one brother, uh, Reuben, who says, no, let's not kill him. Um, <clears throat> so they decide, okay, we, we won't kill him, um, but we're going to throw him into the cistern. And so the, a cistern is like a big water trough that looks like a bottle dug into the ground, and so it would be a water-holding tank, uh, so when, when the rainy season's there, it would fill up, and then they could draw on that water for a while. And, th- and during the dry times of the year, the cisterns, there would be cisterns that would be empty, and so they, they stripped Joseph of the robe, and they threw him into the cistern, and then the and then it says they went over and they sat down and they had lunch. I mean, no remorse for the abuse that they just inflicted on this brother of theirs. And well, while they were eating the whatever it was, they they see a caravan coming by, and somehow Reuben has drifted off somewhere, so he's not there to protect his brother. And 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 Judah has this great idea. Oh yeah, we're not going to kill him, but why don't we sell him? And so they sell Joseph as a slave to this passing caravan for 20 shekels. You want to know how much 20 shekels is in silver? If you took that and the weight of that today to the silver market, you'd get about 100 bucks. So they sold their brother into slavery for 100 bucks, which was about the going rate for a male slave at that time. No remorse. No thought. We're just going to get, we're going to get rid of this they, the the anger and the jealousy and the hatred that has been callousing and hardening and building up over time they finally acted on it and then they had to come up with a story how are we going to tell dad he's not going to be too pleased about this so they kill a goat and they they soak the the robe in blood and they they bring it back to dad and and they don't even They don't even talk about Joseph as their brother. They say, is this your son's robe? They ask a question. And of course, Jacob recognizes the robe and is distraught. And he comes to his own conclusion that he has been killed by a wild animal. And the boys don't refute the story at all. They don't outright lie to their dad, but they lie to their dad. They deceived him. So Jacob, the deceiver who was deceived um, into marrying uh, Leah, was now deceived by his own boys, and we see the consequences just mounting. Most of us know the pain of sin and brokenness in our life in, in some way. A spouse that cheated, a coworker that betrayed a family member who wounded you in some way, whatever it might be, we all know the pain of brokenness. But at the end of the day, this story I told you it was about life. It's about life. It's about redemption. And while we don't get to the full story of redemption, there's a clear message that it's coming. Because the brothers intended to kill Joseph. And he ended up in Egypt alive, there's the hint that the story is going to continue. And as we think about the, own, the, the brokenness that we have in our, in our own lives, you may wonder, okay, well, yeah, I recognize that. What's, what's the good news in all of this? The good news is that Jesus is the one to break your brokenness. Jesus is the one who can break any brokenness. There, there is nothing that you have done. There is no part of your past that Jesus can't take and redeem and forgive. So when we sit here in in the you know the, this place, and we th- we think about our life and brokenness that might be part of it, or when we're at home or, or wherever we are, when it, we we need to remember that Jesus is the one that will break that brokenness. You may have noticed that God is not mentioned once in the whole story, in chapter 37. But just because he is not mentioned by name doesn't mean that he isn't there and active. You may go through chapters of your own life, or if you were writing it, you might not write in God's name because you may just feel like he's absent, that he's not there. But a story like this is here in our Bible to remind us of the fact that Jesus can break any brokenness, and where you're living now doesn't have to be where you continue living. The hurt that you experienced in the past, yes, it'll sting for a long time, but Jesus is the one who can heal that the stories in in our bible to remind us that while we might not think that god is present and active in our life he is right there all the way it might not seem like god was there when the boys the brothers took joseph and stripped him and threw him into the cistern it might seem like he was taking a nap when he was sold off into slavery but Joseph's story continues because of the active presence of God in his life. And when we get to chapter 50, there's a, there's a closing doxology that, that uh, Joseph says, and he says, what you intended for harm, God used for good. And so even in the traumatic situations in your life, maybe there are situations that are totally out of your control, maybe there are situations that, that you put yourself into out of your own doing. God is present in all of those. And even in evil that has been uh, maybe done to you, or maybe even uh, evil that you have done on your own, God can take those things and he can weave a beautiful story. And so the things that, the, the brokenness, the sin that's part of your story, that's part of all of our stories, Jesus came to take care of that and to break And the first step to accepting the gospel of Jesus, the first step for letting Jesus break that brokenness in our life is to just come to the recognition, yeah, I'm flawed. I am broken. I am sinful. And as we finish this morning, I just want to give you the opportunity to to think about that, to to pray. Our, Our worship team is going to come back. We're going to sing that Oh Praise the Name song again. But I would encourage you, here's the challenge for this week. Every morning, maybe it doesn't work for morning, maybe your morning is at night, so it doesn't have to be uh, like 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning, but sometime every day this week, just find a place and kneel down. And the only th- your only prayer is, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. Come to that place in your life where you recognize where you're broken. Maybe you don't know what it is. Ask the Lord. He'll tell you. <laughs> That's the place that we need to go first before the rest of the grace, before we can experience the grace of God that is there for everybody. God has already forgiven all of your sin. What he wants us to do is to openly acknowledge that we're sinners. And so in the colors of the gospel, the the first step in all of that is coming to this place of recognition before God that we are broken. And to say, God, I, I need you you stand Lord thank you for these moments together we thank you for the story that's in front of us and, and my prayer is that as we journey through these chapters in Genesis that your gospel of redemption your gospel of forgiveness and grace would just be abundantly clear to us this morning we come before you and, and we confess to you and we openly acknowledge that we are flawed, sinful human beings and on our own there is nothing that we can do to fix that. There's no system in this world that will fix the brokenness in an eternal sense like you will. So Jesus, work in our hearts, challenge us, convict us, soften our hearts that we might come to the place where we say, Lord, I need you. God, I need you. In these moments as we sing, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us, each in our own way, We know your Holy Spirit is always present, actively at work in our lives, calling us to you. I pray that we would be open to responding today. In Jesus' name, we pray these things, amen.